From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Every day, we're surrounded by so many confounding variables that can easily change the course of our lives. Many of these real-world causes and effects go unnoticed and unreported. With a bit of creative thinking, it is possible to consider how the health and safety of our communities can be impacted in unexpected ways. Now, Dr. Bapu Jenna is advocating for a creative push in analyzing big data and asking questions like, how do these causal events define a bigger picture of healthcare? Dr. Bapu Jenna is the Ruth L. Newhouse Associate Professor of Healthcare Policy at Harvard Medical School and an Associate Professor of Medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital. Thank you, Bapu, for joining us. It's great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So um, the last time you were here, we kind of got into your background and how you started out in medicine and economics. You uh, did a PhD at the University of Chicago, and then you did a medical degree. So uh, is that that's, that's correct. correct? Yeah, it's a long time ago. And you've um, done a lot of interesting work, and some in your work, kind of, um, you look at some of the questions that we might not think about. Some of the some interesting ways to combine health data and economic data. Um, and I wanted to ask you about some of the recent work that you've done since we last had you on the podcast, which is about two years ago now. Um, and one of the studies that you did uh, was looking at patients being prescribed opioids for the first time in the ER based on who their physician is. And this is sort of this idea of a natural experiment. Um, could you tell us about that work? Sure, yeah, absolutely. So, the, you know, I'm sure people who are listening could could identify people in their own lives who have um, who were prescribed an opioid that they maybe didn't need and uh, some fraction of these individuals may be on an opioid long term and it's not uncommon to hear a story about let's say a soccer mom who had her uh, had a tooth extracted and was prescribed an opioid and now one year later is uh, continued continue to be on an opioid and you know when we think about people who are who have chronic pain or who are are dependent on opioids, there's a certain stigma of what that person looks like. But, you know, I don't think that stigma is, is entirely correct, and anybody can become addicted. That's why they're addictive substances. The question, though, is how do you show this? In medicine, we do randomized controlled trials, but there's no randomized controlled trial that's going to randomize patients to opioids versus not and then follow them up a year or two later to see whether or not they remain on opioids. So even though it makes a lot of sense that even a single opioid could lead to long-term use, it's actually difficult to show in a, in a rigorous and elegant way. And the, the study that you're referring to, I think the, the key insight there was you know, there, there actually happens to be a circumstance in which patients do get randomized to differing probabilities of being prescribed an opioid, and that happens in the emergency department. Uh, when you go to the ED as a patient, you don't know the ED doctor who's going to take care of you, and the ED doctor doesn't know you. And what that means is that if you look across 
a number of ED doctors within the same emergency department, there is likely to be substantial variation in their practice styles. We already know that's true across many other decisions that a doctor may make, but it hasn't been shown that doctors within the same ED vary a lot in terms of how likely they are to prescribe an opioid or, or what the strength of the dosing is that they may prescribe. And in this study, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine um, you know, a year or two ago, what we showed was that within the same emergency department, the likelihood that a patient is discharged from the ED with an opioid varies by almost threefold, depending on who they see. So we're not comparing patients who are going to different EDs. You know, some EDs may be in areas where opioids are more likely to be prescribed. We're talking about patients who come to the same emergency department. There's a threefold difference in the likelihood that they're going to walk out with an opioid that is unrelated to why they came to the hospital in the first place. And the reason why is because the patients are essentially randomized to the ED doctor. And what's driving that variation is preferences of the ED doctor or habits, prescribing habits. Now, it's, I think it's somewhat interesting to show that there's this large variation, but what I think is most interesting is to say, well, if you're a patient and you are seen by a high-prescribing doctor, what is the likelihood that one year later you're going to remain on an opioid compared to if you had been seen by a low-prescribing doctor? And what we found was that patients who were randomized to seeing these high-intensity high doctors, prescribing doctors, they're about 20% more likely to be on a long-term opioid, like now one year out, uh, compared to patients who were, who, were, who were initially seen by a low-prescribing doctor. And the summary is that that, I think, adds some credence to the idea that a single prescription uh, to someone who was not using opioids before they came to the emergency department, before they saw care, that a single pres- prescription could lead to long-term use. Of opioids. Right. And the example you gave at the beginning, the soccer mom who gets a tooth extracted and is still on an opioid one year out, is that that type of time frame, is that typical for the type of pain that you would see from? No. In fact, I mean, in, in some, in, depending on the surgery or, you know, what the reason is that you got the opioid, sometimes you need, you don't need an opioid. Sometimes a, a week or so would be enough, but certainly a year out would not be typical. So what, what's almost certainly going on here is that someone was prescribed an opioid for short-term pain relief, but continued to stay on the opioid long-term uh, for reasons that may be due to just kind of the sense, that the euphoria that the opioid generated, or they may have other pain issues um, that they feel are being treated by the opioid. Uh, but either way, it wasn't it wasn't for the for the actual reason that they were prescribed an opioid in the first place. You talked about the patients being randomized. They're being, in effect, randomized because when you go to the emergency department, you're not making an appointment. It's urgent. You just go wherever the ambulance takes you or the closest one that you can get to. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And probably the the correct term would be quasi-randomized. So they're they're not randomized by some investigator who's conducting a randomized controlled trial. They are quasi randomized by nature. By nature, this is how emergency department works. You don't pick your doctor. You don't make an appointment. And the doctor can't select certain patients who have higher propensities to be on long-term opioids. It really is effectively random. How do you come up with this type of idea, this opioid study? You know, in this particular case, I think, uh, you know, a lot of the questions that I and my colleagues will try to answer don't have um, 
you know, as immediate a policy relevance as as this particular one. I think this question came out of an of appreciation by I and and many that the opiate epidemic is really uh, a huge public health issue. There has been a lot of work that uses secondary data, so observational studies of secondary data that try to understand what are the risk factors for long-term opioid use, what are the long-term consequences of short and prolonged opioid use. But most of these studies don't don't rely on any quasi-experimental or quasi-random variation to try and say something causal about what caused what. And that in, in our business and in, in economics, that's what really what the what the you know, the gold standard is to try to try to make statements that are causal, and um, and use those to you know hopefully inform policy. And so in this particular case, I think there's two questions that were interesting or that kind of sparked this idea. One is that there was this belief that a single opioid prescription could lead to long-term use. That's a narrative that we sometimes hear, but that hasn't been empirically demonstrated. And the second is is that we already knew from other areas of health economics that there is a lot of variation across doctors and hospitals in the types of care that's provided. And uh, the question was then, well, whether, whether we would see something similar in opioids, and if so, what types of policies might it lend itself to? So for instance, if you're able to show that within the same ED, there are doctors who are prescribing at three times the rate as others in terms of opioids, that automatically suggests that maybe we should be targeting these high prescribing doctors for education or feedback to let them know here's what happens here's what's happening to your opioid prescribing compared to your peers and then on top of that saying look here's information on your patients one year from now that that kind of analysis is actually can be done in the data that we have we could in theory provide feedback reports to doctors that say of the patients that you prescribed an opioid to for the first time X percent remain an opioid after one year. And for the doctors who are more likely to prescribe opioids, that, that percentage would be larger. And then one could see what's the effect of that information sharing or that peer comparison um, approach on, on subsequent prescribing. Hmm. So, yeah, I was going to ask you where, how do you take that information, what you do with it? Is um, that idea of a, a doctor report is that something that has been done before? Is that something that you're considering doing? I, I'm not considering doing it, but others have done work that's like this, and, mm -hmm. it, and it has mixed success. I mean, telling doctors how they perform relative to their peers is not a foolproof strategy. It, it may work in some contexts, but I, for example, there's a recent study published in Science in which doctors in California who had prescribed opioids to someone who was ultimately found dead, who died of opioid overdose, those doctors were randomized to receive notification of that adverse event, and then these, uh, you know, these the authors of the study then looked at subsequent rates of prescribing and found that for a doctor, uh, for doctors who were randomized to this information about one of their patients dying from an overdose, overdose, their subsequent prescribing fell. So it does suggest that at least for things like opioid, this kind of information sharing might have an impact, but. You've got to balance that with the idea that a doctor looks at a, at a report and says, well, you know, it's not because of me. My patients are different. And for something like opioids, it, that, you know, doctors may think that, but it's a, it's, a high stakes, it's a high stakes prescription. And so they may be more likely to believe that, that uh, their prescribing decisions were in part due, you know, part 
you know, the cause of the bad event and, and change their behavior as a result. Right. So they might think, well, I'm doing the right thing based on the patients. Yeah. It's not um, because it's just coincidence that I have a 30% higher rate. Yeah. My patients are just more in need of this. That's right. I mean, that, that would be the logic that I think mm-hmm. people would use to justify the prescribing. Okay. The interesting thing about the, the that study is that it extends to a lot of other areas in, in opiate prescribing. For example, when you go to the to the hospital and a surgery is performed, sometimes you choose a surgeon, other times you don't. But it's it's quite likely that surgeons vary considerably in their opioid prescribing tendencies. And two patients who go to the hospital for the exact same surgery who happen to see different surgeons might expect to leave the hospital with, with different amounts of opioids. And, uh, you know, this there's th- a lot of this kind of random variation that occurs because of how our health system is is structured. And it, and it does yield some interesting insights about whether, you know, what's the effect of those opioids on short-term bad outcomes, long-term bad outcomes, and also whether or not those opioids are needed for pain relief. So, for instance, in the New England Journal of Medicine study, we looked at whether or not patients who had seen a low prescribing doctor were more likely to come back to the hospital or emergency department mm. in the next mm-hmm. couple of weeks. The idea being that maybe these patients were undertreated for pain. Right. That, that's the trade-off we have to worry about. We didn't find any evidence that they were more likely to come back to the hospital. That doesn't mean that their pain wasn't being undertreated. It may have been, but the pain wasn't significant enough to bring them back to the hospital. And so are there, is there any follow-up work that you're planning on doing with this? Uh, yeah, we are, we're looking a little bit now about how opioid use spreads within, within families. And probably by the time this podcast airs, there'll be some stuff that's published on that. Okay, cool. Um, so sticking with the kind of um, real-world experiment idea, uh, the last time you were on, you talked about a study um, or an idea that you were working on um, that had to do with crowds and the ability of emergency vehicles, ambulances to get to hospitals and what impact that might have on outcomes. And you've since published a study on that uh, that looks at marathons. So I wonder if you could tell us about that and um, there's the kind of interesting story behind how this came about. Sure, yeah. I, I can't remember if I shared this last time, but a few years ago, my wife was running a race. I think it's called the Race to Remember. It, starts, it started in the seaport uh, area of Boston, which is near the water, and it uh, went through Beacon Hill. Beacon Hill is where Massachusetts General Hospital is located, uh, which is where I spent some time clinically. And uh, it extended into Cambridge, and then the runners ran back to the seaport area. And this was my wife's first race, and so she asked me to watch her along the race route. And I decided to park near Mass General because I worked there and I knew the area. So I was driving along the main thoroughfare to get to Mass General. It's a road called Storrow Drive. And as I was about to exit Store Drive to get to Mass General, I wasn't able to do so because the road was blocked. And so I had to turn around and I came home. And several hours later, when I saw my wife at home, she made this offhand comment, gee, I wonder what happens to people who actually need to get to the hospital when there's a big race or a marathon. And I thought to myself, that's a really interesting idea. You know, her race was a self-contained, it was maybe 5K, 10K, something like that, which is very different than a marathon where more than 26 miles are shut down, including, you know, not including all the surrounding roads uh, that are shut down because of the marathon. And you could imagine that that had, would have a really dramatic effect, not only on traffic patterns, but also on emergency transport patterns. And we're not just talking about ambulances. 
who might find it difficult to get to a hospital because it's on the marathon route. We're also talking about people who are having chest pain at home and decide to drive themselves to the hospital and find it difficult to cross over the main street where the marathon is being being held. And we then looked at, I think, 10 or 11 different cities over 10 years. And we identified the dates of major marathons in those cities, like Nashville, Boston, Philadelphia, New York, etc. And we looked at the mortality rate of people who had a heart attack or a cardiac arrest on the dates of those marathons compared to identical days in the surrounding weeks. So let's say the Boston Marathon happens on a Monday. We would compare the cardiac arrest and heart attack mortality rate on the subsequent Mondays and the preceding Mondays in Boston and do the same analysis for each city and and kind of combine that uh, together. And basically what we found was that if if you have a heart attack or a cardiac arrest, cardiac arrest is when your heart stops. So it's a very bad condition. If you have one of these two conditions on the day of a major marathon, your mortality rate goes up about 15%. And then it returns back to normal in the subsequent weeks. And so then you start to think, wow, okay, what's causing this? There's a lot of things that could cause this finding. One might be, for instance, that people are coming from out of town and attending the marathon, and maybe their health risks are different. Well, we can focus our analysis on people who we know live on the marathon route. So that excludes that that possibility. Maybe it's because people are running the marathon and developing chest pain and going into cardiac arrest and having heart attacks because they're running the marathon. Well, we can look at that possibility by restricting the analysis to people who are above a certain age and who are very unlikely to be running marathons. So individuals with dementia or who have end-stage renal disease on dialysis, it's unlikely that they're running the marathon. So if you see this marathon mortality effect in that population, you think it's not due to the marathon participation itself, but because of some byproduct of having a marathon held on a given on a given day. Well, maybe it's about where patients get routed. So for instance, suppose that one hospital does a really good job at treating heart attack patients, but patients cannot get to that hospital on the marathon day. There's no delays per se, but they just get routed to a different hospital that delivers less, less, you know, lower quality cardiac care. Maybe that explains the effect. Well, we can actually look and see where the hospitals are that people are taken to, and the distribution looks identical on the marathon and non-marathon days. So patients are essentially be taken to the same hospital, and that leaves a possibility that it just takes them longer to get there. And we are fortunate to have uh, data from emergency medical services, ambulances, for some of these cities. And what we found was that the ambulance transport time increased by about 20 to 30% on the mornings of the marathons, which is when the roads would be closed. But they returned back to normal in the evenings, Mm -hmm. which is when the roads should be reopened. And in the surrounding days of the marathons, surrounding Mondays, there was no effect on ambulance transport times, which is what you'd expect. So all this put together, increased ambulance transport times on the mornings of major marathons, and increased cardiac arrest and heart attack mortality on the days of major marathons, put together this picture that there are significant delays in emergency care that occur on major marathon days that then lead to increases in mortality for patients who have these cardiac conditions. Mm. Yeah, and you mentioned the looking at the types of people. Um, you're trying to narrow down and exclude people who would likely be running a marathon. Does that, does that increase the 
or does that only include people with worse health that might have more complications? Could that contribute to the yeah, increased good mortality? Point. So there's two things. Like for any given person, the effect of the delay probably depends on how sick they are. So someone who is pretty healthy, if you delay their care by a little bit, may not have an effect on their outcomes. But if you take someone who's really sick, like someone on dialysis, who's having chest pain, and you delay their care, it's quite possible that that would have a big effect on outcomes. So looking at that population was useful for two reasons. One is because it uh, it allowed us to make a statement about whether or not this is due to marathon participation itself versus living in the area where a marathon occurs, and we think it's a second, second uh, explanation. And two, it allows us to focus on a group of people who we really think would be affected by time mm, okay. delays. Yeah. So the people who are who would be most affected by, you know, any small delay, uh, you can show that it actually has an effect. Even a, um, sorry, I don't remember the number. The how long? Like what the well, increase so the tra- was? You know, ambulance times are probably let's say twelve to fifteen minutes, and so yeah. we go up to about twenty minutes. So that's so, but it's a five five minute delay. In absolute terms, it's not a long delay. Uh, on average, right. But what we did not do in the paper, but what we did subsequently, was look at that the distribution. So is that five minute average increase because everybody's taking five minutes longer, or because some patients are taking forty five minutes longer? It turns out it's the latter. Oh, it's that okay. there are some people who take a lot longer than they otherwise would have taken, because just five minutes by itself you wouldn't expect to have. But a that's large on effect. average over the entire city. But yes. when you drill down and you say, well, actually, the hospital over here on the other side of the marathon route is 30 or 40 minutes delayed. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. And so that can have a big impact. That can have a big impact. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's really interesting. You know, you could say, well, what's the point of this? The, the point of this study is not to say that we shouldn't have big public events. Like, you know, Taylor Swift concerts are going to kill people. That's not the point of the, maybe they do, I don't know. But, I mean, that's <laughs> There's not, been research that shows that. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> research at a Harvard University. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the point of a study is not to say that we shouldn't have these big public events. But when a city organizes these events, they are probably thinking about the safety of the participants of those events, who's attending those events, as opposed to the people who live in the surrounding area whose access to timely medical care may be reduced. Right. That's the first point. And the second point is that there's always a question of how fast you need to do something in medicine. If someone's diagnosed with cancer, how quickly do you have to start treating them? If someone has chest pain, how quickly do they need to be evaluated by a doctor? How quickly do they... Do they need to be given medication? How quickly do they need to have a stent placed? All things being equal, if we could delay things, that would be better because then we can make sure we're doing the right thing and do it in doing it in an organized and safe way. But if delays in care have bad effects, then we need to know that so we can act more quickly. But again, you can't randomize patients to delays in care. Right. You know, you can't randomize patients to having a stent placed two hours later versus <laughs> when they you know, within 90 minutes of coming into yeah. the emergency department. But here's a here's an analysis that allows you to say something about what is the impact of delays in cardiac care on on cardiac outcomes. And the answer might be different if you looked at different types of conditions, but at least for cardiac care, it does appear to, to be the case that the delays do matter. Yeah, and cardiac care is something where the time from when you experience the symptoms to when you get treatment is so critical. Exactly, yeah. So how do you see these results, the the insights you've gained from this study, um, how would you like to see that woven into the preparations that 
cities make for these type of events? Good question. When we did the study, we actually called a lot of EMS agencies in various cities. And it's, you know, Boston, I think, was pretty well prepared. I mean, they were cognizant of this issue. Because uh, of the marathon bombing or? Maybe because just, of the marathon bombing or maybe because it's, it's you know, as, as, in a, as a town with EMS services, they're pretty advanced, I think, compared mm-hmm, to other cities. Mm-hmm. But other cities that we spoke to didn't have this on their radar. And perhaps this study puts this on their on their radar and makes them think about how do you ensure that ambulances can access hospitals quickly. So that's something that policy, I mean, city planners who are organizing events would know a lot more about than, than me. But there's a second group here which is worth talking about, which is people who decide to drive themselves to the hospital. Mm-hmm, right. So in our study, I'd say about a third to maybe 30 to 50% of patients who had chest pain or we're driving themselves to the hospital. And the reason we know that is because we don't see any claims, uh, insurance claims filed to Medicare on behalf of an ambulance company. So it suggests that individuals were driving themselves to the hospital. Now for them, the delays are almost certainly considerably larger because an ambulance might be able to bypass a marathon track or do something um, that, a, that a normal driver wouldn't be able to do. And so the solution there is that, well, if there's a marathon that's occurring in a city, then it should be well known to people that if they do have chest pain, if they do feel dizzy, whatever whatever it may be that requires them to call for to seek urgent medical care, that they should then call an ambulance mm. as opposed to trying to drive themselves, which might be okay on a on a non-marathon day, but certainly on a marathon day it would cause a problem. I was wondering if you could talk about how maybe the importance of these types of experiments, the the natural experiments and how this type of work is important and what you can gain from it that you can't gain from like a randomized control trial? I would say the following is that there's a big push towards using large databases to analyze tons of different questions in healthcare. And now I don't think we're at the position where we have a shortage of data. There's just so much data out there. The question is, is what do you do with it and how do you come up with interesting questions to analyze it? As someone who works in this space, I it strikes me that we spend so much time and effort training people how to analyze data. There's a field called data science, which is about how do you study and analyze data. Within medical school and, and graduate programs, we teach statistics, econometrics, epidemiology. This is all a science about how do you analyze data and analyze questions. But there is nothing that teaches us how to come up with interesting questions. And in the podcast I did... A couple of years ago, I talked about how I thought the 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 most important one of the most important skills for someone who does research to be able to 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 master is coming up with interesting ideas. But we're never taught that in our training in graduate school or medical school or postdocs, wherever. We don't we're not taught that. And you know what I try to do, and it, I've done it less now in the last couple of years. But what I try to do is make time each week where I and other people that I work with sit down and just come up with ideas. And some of the ideas that we work on come from those types of sessions. But I think that that practice of coming up with ideas also puts you in the position in which when someone makes a statement that is pretty benign, your brain automatically goes to a place of, wow, this could be an actually an interesting question that I could study. And the only way to prepare your mind to come up with questions like that and respond to cues in your environment is to be doing that in a on a normal 
on a normal basis. I think very much like comedians practice. They practice thinking, I mean, they try to come up with jokes so that when they see something that's there in real life that's actually funny, they view it in a humorous way and know how to take that take that uh, kind of experience and turn it into something that's a story that people can um, find, find humorous. I think it's the same thing in research. We just don't spend a lot of time doing it. My hope is that we over time get better and better at coming up with interesting questions. We develop a framework to be able to come up with innovative ideas and that'll allow us to leverage all of the advances in data, the availability of data and the ability to analyze data that we're seeing. Thank you, Bapu, for coming back and talking with us. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. Appreciate it. Next time on Think Research. There was promising evidence for both of these supplements, and also these are very commonly used supplements. We need to understand the balance of benefits and risks. Dr. Joanne Matson returns to discuss the recent findings of the VITAL trial. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, Please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch.